If you have your Bible with you this morning, go ahead and take it out and go to the chapter that Brother Micah read from this morning, Luke, the 16th chapter. Please go in your Bibles over to Luke chapter 16. That's going to be our main text for consideration this morning. It's so good to see all of you here. So good to be able to worship our God on this Lord's Day. Well, hopefully, hopefully you've been keeping up with your Bible reading this year. And if you've been keeping up with your Bible reading, then you know that for the past three weeks or so, we've been making our way through the Gospel of Luke. In fact, tomorrow we're going to read Luke chapter 15. We're going to read a chapter that includes three of Jesus' most famous parables, the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the lost boy. In Luke chapter 17 on Wednesday, we're going to read about the, the time, the occasion when Jesus miraculously healed 10 lepers. And then in Luke 18 and 19, we're going to read about the Lord's encounters with the rich young ruler and Zacchaeus. And we're going to follow him one last time to Jerusalem. And then on Tuesday in Luke 16, we're going to read what may be one of the most intriguing stories in the gospel. And that is the story of the rich man and Lazarus. The story of the rich man and Lazarus. Brothers and sisters, are you familiar with the story of the rich man and Lazarus? The story of the rich man and Lazarus is somewhat controversial among brethren today. It is controversial because some see it as a parable like the good Samaritan and the prodigal son. And others see it as a retelling of a real life event. Many brethren are divided on whether or not this is a parable or an actual event, but for me personally, I don't really think it matters. I don't really think that is something that is worthy of debate. You see, whether this is a parable or an actual event, the fact of the matter is the lessons are still there either way. The content is still there either way. The main message that the Lord is trying to get across is still there either way. You see, instead of wasting our time debating something that is really not a big deal, what we need to do this morning is focus on those things. We need to focus on the lessons. We need to focus on the content. We need to focus on the main point of this story that unfortunately is, is often overlooked. You see, my dear friends, so often today, the only time we go and study this story is to consider what it says about the afterlife, right? It's to consider what it says about life after death. I mean, since as human beings, we are so curious about what's going to happen to us when we die. That tends to be the main thing that we focus on when we study this story. And while I will agree that there are certainly some lessons that we can learn about the afterlife when we study this story. I also want to suggest to you that there's so much more the Lord wants us to take away from it. 
There are so many other lessons that the Lord wants us to, to glean from the story. In fact, this morning in our lesson, I want to share with you three lessons, three very powerful lessons that Jesus wants us to really appreciate from the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And here's the first point right here. The first point that I want us to appreciate from the story of the rich man and Lazarus is a point that has to do with greed. Greed. You see, according to what Jesus teaches in the story of the rich man and Lazarus, greed and selfishness is something that will cost us our souls. And someone says, well, wait a minute, Sean, why didn't you start this sermon by talking about death? Well, why didn't you start this sermon by talking about the main thing we want to focus on this morning? And that is the afterlife. Well, my friend, the main reason why I did not begin this sermon talking about death and the afterlife, because the fact of the matter is death in the afterlife is not the main point of this story. Death in the afterlife is not the main reason why Jesus told this story in the first place. You see, when you study this story carefully in its context, you will see that the main point of it is not to tell us what's going to happen to us when we die. It's not to talk about what's going to happen to our souls when they exit out of our, our bodies, although that's the main thing we tend to focus on today. When we study this story, we need to understand that that bit of information we're given, that only comes as a byproduct of the main point. Again, the main point of this story is not what's going to happen when you die. Instead, the main point has to do with the sin of greed. It has to do with the sin of selfishness. It has to do with even the sin of having a covetous heart. That's the main point. I just don't want to tell you that. I want to show you that from the text. And so let's be good Bible students this morning. And let's go back to Luke 16. Are you in Luke 16? Go back to the beginning of the chapter. Let's get this story in its context. Go back to Luke 16. Look at verse number one. You see Luke 16 and verse one. Notice how this chapter opens up by Jesus telling a parable. Notice how he tells the parable of the unrighteous steward. Do you see that? Who was the unrighteous steward? Well, if you're familiar with that parable, then you know that the unrighteous steward was a lover of money, right? The unrighteous steward was someone who had cheated and done corrupt things with his master's money. The unrighteous steward was a covetous man. He was a greedy man. That's who the unrighteous steward was. The question is, why does Jesus even tell that parable about the unrighteous steward? Well, the answer is found in verse number 13. You got your Bible? Look at verse 13. Verses 13 and 14 are the key verses to really understanding what's going on in this chapter. In Luke 16 and verse 13, after Jesus tells this parable about a greedy, covetous, selfish man, a corrupt man with his master's money, Jesus says this in Luke 16 and verse 13. Here's his point. He says, no servant, no servant can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't serve God and wealth or you can't serve God and money. Now look at verse 14. Verse 14 is the key. 
If there is any passage to underline in this chapter, it is verse 14. It says, now the Pharisees who were what? Lovers of money, who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things and they were scoffing at him. My dear friends, I submit to you that what you find there in that verse, verse 14, that's the key verse here in, in this chapter. That's the key issue that's going on in this unit. You see, here in this unit, the main thing the Lord is doing is he's exposing the greed and the covetousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. In this unit, he is warning people against being like them, against being selfish and greedy and lovers of money. That's why Jesus told the parable of the unrighteous steward. And that's also why he told this parable we're studying this morning or this story we're studying this morning. That's also why he told this story about a man, a rich man who lived a pretty good life, right? He tells a story about a man. Maybe this is an actual event. Doesn't matter. But this man lived in splendor. And he lived in luxury every single day. He ate the best food. He dressed in the best clothes. He probably lived in some huge palace somewhere in Jerusalem. He lived an extravagant and wonderful life. And his life is contrasted with the life of another man in the story named Lazarus. Now, we don't know the, the real name of the rich man. He's just called the rich man. But we do know who the poor man was. It's Lazarus. And don't, don't misunderstand. This is not the same Lazarus that Jesus raised from the dead in John chapter 11. This is not the same Lazarus who was a friend of Mary and Martha. Instead, this Lazarus was a beggar. He was extremely poor. He was someone who was so poor that he laid at the gate of the rich man daily and he begged for crumbs that fell from his table. He was a man who was completely destitute. And he was also a man who had some health problems, didn't he? He was also a man who had painful sores all over his body, and to get relief from the sores, he would have the dogs come in and lick the sores. He lived a terrible life. He lived a miserable life. And the really sad thing about this is that rich man, he wouldn't help him. He wouldn't bless him. He wouldn't share his, his blessings with him for no, telling, for no telling how long that rich man probably just stood outside his, his window in his huge palace and, and he mocked that, that, that poor man. He, he may have been disgusted with that poor man. He may have even said, I'd be glad when he gets away from my gate. I'm tired of seeing him out there every day begging for crumbs. There's no telling how long this rich man had an opportunity to help this poor beggar, but the implication of the story is he didn't help him. He didn't share even the crumbs with him, and because he was like that, Jesus says that when he died, he died lost. He died separated from God. When he died, he was put in a place that was very different than what he was used to when he lived on the earth. 
You see, while there's nothing wrong with having material wealth, while there's nothing wrong with having money and having stuff, when you study this story in its context, you will see that the main point the Lord is trying to get us to understand is he doesn't want us to be greedy with our stuff. He doesn't want us to be greedy with our wealth. He doesn't want us to be stingy with the blessings God has given us. This is a message that is emphasized throughout the New Testament. For example, in Acts 20, verse number 35, as the Apostle Paul spoke to the elders at Ephesus, he says, In everything I showed you, that by working hard in this matter, you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said. Jesus said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. The rich man, he failed to live by that code, didn't he? You put that what you find in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 10. And there the apostle Paul says, so then while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people. As individuals, we should do good to all people, both Christian and non-Christians, but especially to those who are of the household of faith. You go then the first Timothy chapter six, verses 17 through 19. And Paul says, instruct those who are rich in this present world. Who are those who are rich in the present world? Well, when you stop and consider the world as a whole, when you stop and consider our situation compared to the vast majority of people in the world right now, the rich in this present world are people like us. People like everybody in the room right now, people who live in the most prosperous country in the world. We are the rich in this present world. And my friend, if you don't believe that, then that is showing that you haven't traveled very much. You need to get out of America sometimes. You need to go to some other countries. When you travel a little bit and look at what's going on in the world as a whole, you will clearly see that every one of us are the people who are rich in this present world. Paul says to people like us that we should not be conceited or to fix our hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct people like us to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for ourselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Even though we're living during a time of pandemic, and we can fall into the trap of griping and complaining. Paul is talking about us in these verses. We are the people who are still very rich compared to the, the vast majority of the world. Now, go over in your Bible to Matthew 25. I want to show you something in Matthew 25. You're probably familiar with Matthew 25. I want to ask you to try to read this with me with fresh eyes, okay? Matthew 25, beginning with verse number 31. This right here, in my judgment is a judgment day scene. This is Jesus talking about what's going to happen when he comes again and the world is destroyed and he's going to gather all the nations before him. And when he gathers all the nations before him, he's going to separate the righteous from the wicked like a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. You're familiar with that, right? Well, look at verse 34. Look at verse 34. It says, then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you for the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. 
I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. Naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous were answering him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king will answer and say to them, truly, I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of the least of the, to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. The rich man should have lived by this, shouldn't he? He should have lived by this. Now, look at verse 41. This is the rich man right here. Then he will say to also those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones, and to the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they themselves also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, people like Lazarus, you did, you did not do it to me. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Do you see the point? I want you to pay close attention to this conversation that Jesus is having with these people in this judgment day scene. Notice how the main thing under consideration in this conversation is whether or not these people lived lives that were different than the rich man in Luke 16. Whether or not they were stingy or generous. Whether or not they were greedy or full of liberality. Whether or not they lived their lives solely focused on themselves and their own needs. Or they used their time and their blessings to help other people. That's the main thing that Jesus talks with these people about in Matthew 25. That's the main thing under consideration in that judgment day scene and that's also the main thing under consideration in this story right here. When you study this story carefully in its context, you'll see that the main point, the main lesson Jesus is trying to teach is don't be like the Pharisees. Don't be greedy. Greediness and selfishness will cost you your soul. But this does bring us now to the next part, and, I, and, I, and that is I do want to suggest to you that there are some lessons that we can learn about the afterlife. Oh, yes, there are some lessons that we can learn about the afterlife, and that's what you've been waiting for, right? Oh, that's what you've been waiting for. You and I both know that typically the only time we study this story today as Christians is... It's not to study the main point. We don't really care about the main point of the story. We don't really care about the point of greed and selfishness. Instead, we want to talk about death. We want to talk about the afterlife. We want to talk about what's going to happen to us when we die. That's usually the main thing we focus on when we study this story. And my question is, why is that? Why is it that the subject of death in the afterlife is the main thing that we tend to focus on when we study this story. Well, I believe that the main reason why we focus on that when we study this story is because let's just be honest about it. We're curious, aren't we? Oh, yes, we're curious. 
I mean, since none of us have experienced death in the afterlife before, we want to know what is that going to be like? What is that going to feel like? What is that going to comprise of? I believe that's the main reason why we focus on that when we study this story. And so let's talk about that a little bit. Let's talk about some of the things that Jesus says as a byproduct of the main point. I want to give you a few lessons that I think we can learn about the afterlife from this story. And I'm not going to have time to break down every part of this due to time. And so what I just want to do for this lesson, for the purpose of this study, I just want to give you four things, four things that I think are crystal clear and they line up perfectly with everything else we find in the Bible on this subject. Okay? I want to give you four lessons that I think we can learn about the afterlife from this story. First, from this story, I think we see that contrary to what the atheist wants us to believe, brothers and sisters, the afterlife is real. The afterlife is legitimate. The afterlife is something that we are all going to experience. Go back to Luke chapter 16. Look at verses 22 and verse number 23. Notice how in verses 22 and verse number 23, we see that after the rich man died and after Lazarus died, they both continued to live on, right? They both continue to exist. They both continue to experience consciousness in the spiritual realm. In fact, not only did they experience consciousness in the spiritual realm, but I want you to notice, secondly, how they retain their identities. They retain their personalities. They even retain their memories. They were not annihilated like some religious groups suggest. They did not cease to exist. They did not experience some kind of reincarnation. Instead, they retained their identities. They retained their personalities. They retained even their memories. And the same thing is also going to be true for us. You see, in the afterlife, in the next life, Dave Sparks is still going to be Dave Sparks. Mitch is still going to be Mitch. Michelle's still going to be Michelle. Dale and Pam will still be who they are. Peggy will still be Peggy. Stan will still be Stan. Carolyn will still be Carolyn. Like the rich man and Lazarus, we will retain our identities. These men retain their identities. But notice thirdly how they were also separated. Do you see that? They were separated in Hades. They were separated in the place where all Departed souls go to await the resurrection and the second coming of Jesus. According to what Jesus says here, these two men did not end up in the same place in Hades. They did not end up in the same place where all departed souls go to await the resurrection. In the case of the rich man, because of his greediness and because of his selfishness, he ended up in a place that none of us want to be, and that's a place of torment. That's a place of agony. That's a place where there is no relief from the misery that is experienced. The rich man ended up in torment in Hades, while the poor man, Lazarus, he was taken by the angels of God to a place of comfort. 
He was taken to the same section of Hades where the faithful man of God, Abraham, was. He was taken to paradise, as Jesus refers to it as in Luke 23, verse 43. Because one man was a righteous man and the other man was a wicked man, these two men were separated in Hades. One was in a place of comfort, one was in a place of torment, and then fourthly notice how when it came to their eternal fates, their eternal fates were sealed, right? They were sealed. In the case of the rich man, he couldn't go back to the earth and redo his life and start living for the Lord. He couldn't be resurrected and start living a new life and repent of his sins. He couldn't go back to the earth and start showing mercy to the poor. No, once he died lost in his sins, that was it. His eternal fate was sealed and there was nothing he could do to change it. It was finalized. That's what Jesus says. And that shows us something, doesn't it? That shows us that contrary to what a lot of folks in our culture suggest today, it does matter how we live right now. It does matter what we do. It does matter how we treat other people. It does matter how we conduct ourselves while we live on God's good earth. You see, we have to understand that both of these men ended up where they did after death because of how they lived during the limited time God gave them on the earth. In, in the case of the rich man, he ended up lost. He ended up in torment because while he was on the earth, he was selfish and he was wicked and he was greedy. And in the case of Lazarus, even though he was a poor beggar, evidently he must have been storing up some treasures in heaven. Evidently, he must have been making sure that he did not allow his poor circumstances to prevent him from loving God and trusting God and putting God first. You see, Lazarus may have been poor by the standards of the world, but he was rich by the standards of heaven. He was rich by the standards of God. The question is, is what about you? What about you? I mean, right now, as you evaluate your life, where do you currently stand in the eyes of God? Right now, as you evaluate your life, are you making the most of the limited amount of time that God gives you on this earth? Or are you truly sold on the facts that Jesus is revealing in this story? Do you understand that the same process, the same process that occurred with the rich man in Lazarus, it's also going to occur with you. If the Lord doesn't come back first, you're also going to die. Your soul will also one day exit out of your body. And it's going to continue to exist in Hades. And depending on how you've lived your life, depending on whether or not you've, you've lived your life serving God or completely rebelling against his will, that's going to determine whether or not you're in comfort with Lazarus or whether or not you're in torment with the rich man. And whatever situation you find yourself in, that is going to be permanent. It's going to be finalized. There's not going to be any redos. Those are some clear principles that Jesus is telling us about death 
and the afterlife and this story. In fact, that brings us to our third and final point this morning. And our third and final point this morning doesn't have to do with greed. And it doesn't have to do, by, uh, to do with death and the afterlife. Instead, our third and final point has to do with the Bible. It has to do with the word of God. And the lesson we learn about the word of God is the word of God is enough. The word of God is sufficient. The word of God is all we need. Someone says, well, Sean, where in the world do you find that in this story? Well, go back to the story and look carefully at it. Go back and look carefully at verse number 27. Do you see verse 27 in Luke 16? Notice how in verse number 27, once the rich man realized that his eternal fate was sealed, once he realized that there were no redos, that his eternal destiny was finalized, he then asked Abraham for permission to send Lazarus back to his father's house. Do you see that? He wanted Lazarus to go back to the land of the living. He wanted Lazarus to be resurrected. He wanted him to, to be raised from the dead because he wanted him to go back to his father's house and warn his brothers about the consequences of not obeying God. He wanted Lazarus to warn his five brothers about the afterlife. He wanted Lazarus to warn them about the place of torment that he was in in Hades. That was the request that he made. And notice how Abraham, the faithful man of God, notice how he responds to that. Look at verse 29, Luke 16, 29. After the rich man made this request to send Lazarus back to, to his father's household, Abraham said this. He said they, referring to the brothers of the rich man, they have Moses and the prophets let them hear them. But he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. Notice how in response to the rich man's request to send Lazarus back to his father's household to warn his five brothers, Abraham responded to that request by saying the point that's on the slide right now. He responded to that request by saying the Bible is enough. The Bible is sufficient. The Bible is all your brothers need. That's what Abraham said. That's exactly what he means when he mentions Moses and the prophets. That language, Moses and the prophets, there is a reference to the writings of Moses and the prophets. That is a reference to the writings of the Old Testament scriptures. That is a reference to the writings of the law of God that was in force at that time. You see here, Abraham is emphasizing that all people need is the Bible. All I need is the Bible. All you need is the Bible. All we need is the Bible to lead us to God and avoid the sinners of hell. That's what Abraham says. The question is, do we understand that? 
Do we understand the words of Abraham? Do we understand that the Bible is enough? Do we understand that the Bible is enough to know about God and how to please God? Do we understand that the Bible is enough to know about sin? And to know about the consequence of sin and to know about how Jesus loves us so much that he gave his life on the cross for our sins. Do we understand that if we want to know the truth about heaven and hell and about how we should want to avoid hell at all costs, then we don't need to hear from somebody who's already there. We don't need to hear from somebody who's already died. We don't need a sign from heaven or some miraculous vision or even to hear God speak to us in a dream. No, brothers and sisters, all we need is the Bible. All we need is the word of God. The word of God is enough. Paul makes that same point in 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. There Paul says all scripture, the Old Testament and the New Testament, is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness so that the man of God or the woman of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Notice how here in these verses, the apostle Paul is making the same point as Abraham. He is saying the Bible's enough. The Bible is sufficient. If we're not convicted to serve God by the words of the Bible, then we won't be convicted to serve him, even if we saw somebody rise from the dead. In fact, when it comes to someone rising from the dead, didn't Jesus already do that? Wasn't Jesus raised on the third day and seen all over the place? And yet, how many people still refuse to believe and serve him? Unfortunately, the vast majority of people do that. The question is, what about you? Do you believe in Jesus Christ? Do you believe he's a son of God because he was raised from the dead? Do you believe the Bible is his word and that the Bible is all you need to be adequate and equipped for every good work? The Bible is all you need to be trained in the ways of righteousness. Do you believe that? Well, if you believe that and you've yet to respond to the gospel message, you have an opportunity to do that this morning. This morning, you have an opportunity to make sure that you don't end up in the same situation that the rich man is in right now. This morning you have an opportunity to believe in Jesus and repent of your sins and to obey his commandment, to be baptized in water for the forgiveness of your sins. If you will do those things, and you will be on that path you need to be, that path that will lead you to comfort in Hades and ultimately lead you to heaven when our Lord comes back and the dead are raised. And so there's someone here this morning who needs to respond to the sufficient word of God we want to help you with that. Come to the front right now. Let's stand. Let's sing.